Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Brown here. Glad you could join us today. All right, so I remind you, you're listening to our recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials are items read in Ayers, LA, are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No unauthorized use or duplication is permitted. All right, so we're going we're gonna to start off, uh, unfortunately, with an obituary here from the... Los Angeles Times calendar section for Wednesday, November 1st, 2023. Robert Brewstein, 1927 to 2023, pioneer, crusader of the theater, founder of Yale and Harvard stage programs, championed nonprofit outlets by Mark Kennedy. New York. Robert Brewstein, a giant in the theatrical world as a critic, playwright, crusader, for artistic integrity and founder of two of the leading regional theaters in the country, has died. He was 96. Brewston died Sunday at his home in Cambridge, Massachusetts, according to an emailed statement from Gideon Lester, the artistic director and chief executive of the Fisher Center at Bard University and a decades-long family friend. Lester said he heard the news from Brewston's wife, Doreen Beinhart. Known as a passionate and provocative theater advocate who pushed for boundary-breaking works and for classics to be adventurously modernized, Brewstein founded both the Yale Repertory Theater and the American Repertory Theater at Harvard. Some of the works he championed upset critics and playgoers uh, unused to non-traditional productions, but he was unapologetic. I know I'm out of step, he told the New York Times in 21. I'm so out of step, I'm almost in step. Even in his 80s, Brewston continued to offer his opinions on everything from art to politics, lashing out at the Tea Party and describing the pain of breaking ribs on his own blog. He was a distinguished scholar in residence at Suffolk University, a professor of English emeritus at Harvard University, and a longtime critic at the New Republic. Born in New York City on April 21, 1927, Brewston earned a bachelor's from Amherst and a master's from and Ph.D. from Columbia. A Fulbright scholar, he taught at Cornell, Vassar, and Columbia. He was dean of the Yale School of Drama from 1966 to 1979, and during that time, he founded the Yale Repertory Theater. Yale Rep, a champion of new work, has produced several Pulitzer Prize winners and nominated finalists. Many of his productions have advanced to Broadway and together have garnered 10 Tony Awards and more than 40 nominations. The goal is to try and have people in the audience take away something that lasts and will haunt them, be it either a subject for debate or of their dreams, he told the Los Angeles Times in 1997. They'll have an unresolved experience. After a painful, highly publicized dismissal from Yale, Brewstein in 1979 switched to Harvard, where he taught English and founded the American Repertory Theater in 1980. Then in 1987, he founded the Institute for Advanced Theater Training, a two-year graduate program. He retired as artistic director from ART in 2002, but continued serving as its founding director. ART has grown into one of the country's most celebrated theaters and the winner of numerous awards, including the Tony Award and the Pulitzer Prize. In 2003, it was named one of the top three regional theaters in the country by Time magazine. Over the course of his long career as director, playwright, and teacher, 
Brustein aided the artistic development of such theater art artists as Meryl Streep, Christopher Walken, Cherry Jones, Sigourney Weaver, James Naughton, James Lapine, Tony Shalhoub, Linda Lavin, Adam Rapp, William Ivy Long, Steve Zahn, Wendy Wasserstein, David Mamet, and Peter Sellers. At both Yale Rep and ART, Brustein told the Boston Globe in 2012 he embraced popular theater with a nationalistic streak. We were trying to liberate American theater from its British overseers. We were trying to find an American style for the classics, he said. I was looking for the energies of popular theater applied to traditional work. I was also looking for new American plays. This is a very important function of ours uh, to, encounter, to encourage and develop new American playwrights. Brucine's own full-length plays include Demons, the, the Face Life, and Spring Forward Fall Back, and Nobody Dies on Friday, based on the real-life relationship between Lee Strasberg and his student, Marilyn Monroe. His trilogy on the life and work of William Shakespeare includes The English Channel, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, Mortal Terror, and The Last Will, a witty play that takes place inside a tavern on the eve of Shakespeare's theater career and presents the young poet as an intellectual kleptomaniac. Brewston was a staunch believer that the theater should be first and foremost an art form, not just a political platform. He once criticized African-American playwright August Wilson for declaring that black people should not participate in colorblind casting, but should form their own separatist companies. The pair then aired their differences in 1997 in a high-profile confrontation at New York's Town Hall. I think the greatest theater that is, is that which combines the low and the high, he told the Globe. One thing I can't stand is the middle. His short plays include Poker Face, Checo Down on Ice, and Airport Hell. His other books include Revolutionist Theater, Letters to a Young Actor, and multiple volumes of his essays and criticisms. He won multiple honors, including the George Polk Award for Journalism and an award for Distinguished Service for the Art to the Arts from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. He was also inducted into the Theater Hall of Fame. In 2010, he was awarded the Medal of Arts by President Obama at the White House and hailed as a leading force in the development of theater and theater artists in the United States. He is survived by his wife, who ran the human rights film program at the Carr Center for the Human Rights Policy at the Kennedy School of Government, and his son, Daniel. His first wife, actor Norma Brustein, died just after he was let go from Yale. That was Robert Brustein. 1927-2023, Pioneer Crusader of Theater by Mark Kennedy. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, November 1st, 2023, Kennedy writes for the Associated Press. All right, on to Israel. From the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 27th, 2023, Israel stages brief ground raid in northern Gaza. In the largest known incursion, soldiers and tanks target fighters and tunnels by Najib Jobain Karim Jehai and Amy Tebow, Rafa Gaza Strip. Israeli troops and tanks briefly raided northern Gaza overnight, the military said Thursday, engaging with Hamas fighters and targeting anti-tank weapons in order to prepare the battlefield before an expected ground invasion. Third Israeli raid since the war began came after more than two weeks of devastating airstrikes that have left thousands dead. 
and more than one million displaced from their homes in the small, densely populated territory. Arab leaders made a joint plea Thursday for a ceasefire to end civilian suffering and allow humanitarian aid into Gaza, where Israel has opposed a suffocating siege and ever since Hamas's rampage and hostage-taking in southern Israel ignited the war. Residents are running out of food, water, and medicine, and human workers have barely any fuel left to support relief missions. The rising death toll in Gaza is unprecedented in the decades-long Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The health ministry in Hamas-ruled Gaza said Thursday that more than 7,000 Palestinians have died in the fighting, a figure that could not be independently verified. Even greater loss of life could come if Israel launches a ground offensive aimed at crushing Hamas, which has ruled Gaza, Gaza since 2007 and survived four previous wars with Israel. More than 1,400 people in Israel, mostly civilians, were slain during the initial Hamas attack, according to the Israeli government. The damage to Gaza from nearly three weeks of bombardment showed in satellite photos of several locations taken before the war and again in recent days. Entire rows of residential buildings simply disappear in the photos, reduced to smears of dust and rubble. A complex of 13 high-rises by the sea was pounded to dust in near Gaza City's Al-Shati refugee camp, leaving only a few tottering bits of facade. Just down the street, hardly anything remained in what had been a neighborhood of low-built homes on winding lanes, according to the photos by Maxar Technologies. New strikes Thursday leveled more than eight homes belonging to an extended family, killing at least 15 in the southern city of Khan Yunus. In the chaotic wasteland of crumbled con concrete and twisted metal, rescuers lifted the body of a boy from beneath a slab. The Israeli military said an airstrike killed one of two masterminds of the October 7 massacre, Shadi Baroud, the head of Hamas's intelligence unit. The military says it only strikes militant targets and accuses Hamas of operating among civilians in an attempt to protect its fighters. Palestinian militants have fired thousands of rockets into Israel since the war began. One struck a residential building in the central city of Petah Tikva without wounding anyone. Hamas's military wing said Thursday that Israeli bombardment has so far killed about 50 or uh, of that of the at least 224 hostages the militants abducted during its October 7 assault. There was no immediate comment from the Israeli officials who have denied previous similar claims. Family members and Jewish groups are trying to keep the spotlight on the hostages' plight. In Paris, 30 empty baby strollers were displayed in front of the Eiffel Tower, each with a photo of one of the children taken from Israel. A day earlier, blindfolded teddy, bear, teddy bears with Photos of the abducted children were placed in front of a fountain in Tel Aviv. The conflict has threatened to ignite a wider war across the region. Hezbollah, an Iranian-backed ally of Hamas in Lebanon, has repeatedly traded fire with Israel along the border. The United States has sent to, uh, to the region two aircraft carrier strike groups, along with additional fighter jets and other weaponry and personnel. Israel has vowed to crush Hamas's capacity to govern Gaza or threaten Israel again, but also says it doesn't want to reoccupy the territory from which it withdrew soldiers and settlers in 2005. That could prove a daunting challenge since Hamas is deeply rooted in Gaza with political and charity organizations as well as a formidable armed wing.
Benny Gantz, a retired general and a, a member of Israel's war cabinet, said any possible ground offensive would be only one stage in a long-term process that includes security, political, and social aspects that will take years. The campaign will soon ramp up with greater force, he added. The overnight raid into Gaza was the largest of several known brief incursions. The military said soldiers and tanks killed fighters and destroyed tunnels and anti-tank missile launching positions. The military said no Israelis were wounded. There were no immediate confirmation of any Palestinian casualties. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, a military spokesman, said the incursion was part of our preparations for the next stages of the war. Israel also said it also carried out uh, 250 airstrikes across Gaza in the last 24 hours, targeting tunnel shafts, rocket launchers, and other militant infrastructure. Its reported targeting could not be independently verified. The figure of 7,000 deaths reported by the Gaza Health Ministry is more than three times the number of Palestinians killed in the six-week-long Gaza War in 2014. The ministry's toll includes more than 2,900 minors and more than 1,500 women. After President Biden said he had no confidence in Gaza's casualty figures, the health ministry on Thursday countered by releasing a more than 200-page document listing the names of 6,747 dead, including ages and gender. It said an additional 281 dead had not been identified and that hundreds are still missing under rubble who were not included in the count. The warning by the UN Agency for Palestinian, for Palestinian Refugees, UNRWA, over depleting fuel supplies raised alarm that the humanitarian crisis could quickly worsen. Israel is still barring deliveries of fuel needed to power generators, saying it believes Hamas will take it for military use. But 1.4 million of Gaza's 2.3 million residents have fled their homes, with nearly half of them crowding into UN shelters. Hundreds of thousands remain in northern Gaza, despite Israel ordering them to evacuate to the south and saying that those who remain might be considered accomplices of Hamas. In recent days, Israel has let more than 70 trucks with aid enter from Egypt. This is a small amount of what is required. A drop in the ocean, said William Schomburg, an official with the International Committee of the Red Cross in Gaza. We are trying to establish a pipeline. Nine Arab countries, including key U.S. allies and nations that have signed peace or normalization deals with Israel, issued a joint statement Thursday calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the targeting and death of civilians. The right to self-defense by the United Nations Charter does not justify blatant violations of humanitarian and international laws, said the statement signed by Egypt, Jordan, Bahrain, the United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, Oman, Qatar, Kuwait, and Morocco. In the occupied West Bank, Israeli authorities detained 86 Palestinians, including five women, in multiple raids overnight, bringing the total detained there to more than 1,400, according to the Palestinian Prisoners Club, which represents former and current uh, prisoners. At least 104 Palestinians have been killed in violence in the West Bank. That was Israel stages brief ground raid in northern Gaza by Najib Jobain Karim Chehayi and Amy Tabel. From the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 27, 2023, Joe Bain, 
Shehaib and Tebow write for the Associated Press. All right, we have a few articles from the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. This first one is, even horrific news is a relief. Confirmation of Israeli festival goers' death brings closure and shines a light on family's ordeal after Hamas's attack. By Laura King. Tel Aviv. Few who saw gruesome video of shiny Luke's near-naked body being par paraded through the streets of Gaza more than three weeks ago would have, uh, would have imagined the young German-Israeli woman might still be alive, but some friends and family had clung to that hope. Israel's foreign ministry on Monday confirmed the death of Luke, 22, one of hundreds of young people, Israeli and foreign, who had flocked this month to an all-night desert rave staged just three miles from the border fence with Gaza. When Hamas militants surged across the frontier before dawn on October 7, one of their first targets was the sprawling encampment where the huge open-air party was taking place. There was festival security, but it was set up mainly for crowd control and dealing with medical emergencies, not to counter a lethal and well-organized military-style assault. In normal times, in, in Israel, the music festival massacre, which take which taken place, were taken alone, would represent the worst mass killing of civilians since the state's creation 75 years ago, uh, would have dominated national discourse for weeks. But the estimated 260 deaths were only one element of the day's larger horror: the slaughter of 1,400 people, uh, four fifths of them civilian. The fatality count is still imprecise because the long process of body identification is still going on, with funerals still occurring daily across the country. Some families embark upon the week-long Jewish mourning ritual of sitting Shiva only after receiving formal forensic proof of a death that took place weeks ago. The festival attack, horrified as it was for Israelis, was swiftly subsumed by a crush of fast-moving events. A declaration of war with Hamas, the ongoing crisis over the militant seizure of more than 230 hostages, and Israel's intense round-the-clock bombing of wide swaths of the Gaza Strip, a sealed-off territory inhabited by 2.3 million Palestinians. Despite humanitarian conditions inside the enclave have set off widespread calls for a pause of the Israeli bombardment and ground operation, which Israel says is meant to eradicate Hamas, kill its leaders, and end its government governance in Gaza. The death toll in the Gaza Strip has passed 8,300, according to Palestinian health officials, and this conflict is already deadlier than Israel's four previous wars with Hamas combined. For weeks now, grisly accounts of the festival attack in Israel have, cir have circulated with multiple survivors relating their ordeals on social media and in interviews. Family members recounted receiving desperate early morning calls and texts from sons and daughters at the rave as the deadly attack and hostage-taking rampage were unfolding. In their telling, attackers on motorbikes and in trucks descended on the encampment as a rocket attack on the area was underway with initial volleys of gunshots round out by the sound of projectiles roaring overhead. The assailants cut off routes which, may, which many by which many tried to flee by car and pursued terrified attendees on foot into surrounding fields and brushland, where many recounted hiding for hours. 
Festival goers who manage to escape or conceal themselves describe seeing friends and strangers gut gut cut down by gunfire or seized and dragged away by militants. And one of the day's most striking images, a brief video clip showed scores of young people fleeing across the broad vista of an open field. Many sought safety in nearby small communities, but their pursuers followed, tossing grenades into public bomb shelters where some huddled, survivors recounted. The parents of 23-year-old Californian-born Hirsch Golder Poland, who spoke to the Los Angeles Times five days after the attack, said his first text to them that morning said, I love you. The second one said, I'm sorry. I immediately took that to mean he knew he was in trouble, that it would cause a lot of us pain, and he was sorry, said his mother, Rachel Goldberg. Witnesses who were with Goldberg Pollen at the time told them their son was seriously injured in the attack, with part of his arm blown off by a grenade, and videos surfaced last week of him being loaded into a vehicle at gunpoint upon his capture, but the parents have heard nothing more. In addition to the festival goers, other captives taken into Gaza were seized from nearby small communities where the attackers caught dozens of families by surprise at home, killing, mutilating, and torturing many victims, according to witnesses, rescue officials, and body camera video taken by the assailants. The dead and abducted range in age from infants to the very elderly and include scores of children. Luke was described by friends and family as a free-spirited young woman who loved raves just like this one was intended to be communal gatherings and natural settings with hypnotic trance music that throbs through the night. Her social media posts from shortly before the attack showed her striking poses with friends and dancing exuberantly. The recording of Loke's body being displayed in the streets of Gaza as a seeming trophy spat upon by at least one onlooker was one of the first atrocity clips uh, to circulate widely after the festival massacre. Now far more videos of the attack and its aftermath are in online circulation, some of them taken by body cameras. It took many Israelis some days to grasp the full ferocity of the Hamas-led attack as forensic doctors issued grimly clinical reports detailing victims' fatal injuries. Scores of close-range shootings on one man's neck hacked through with a garden hoe, burns and smoke inhalation suffered after homes were set ablaze while people sheltered in safe rooms, many bodies with hands bound bearing signs of torture. In the video shot that day in Gaza, Loke's limp body lay face down in the back of a truck, surrounded by armed men, her bare legs adorned with distinctive diag diagonal tattoos, were, dis were displayed at unnatural angles. Her long, blonde-tipped redlocks were tangled at the base of her skull, appearing soaked with blood. Despite there being no evident sign of life at the time, her mother, Ricarda Loke, said in a public appeal for information after the attack that her video, that video had shown her daughter unconscious in a vehicle being driven through Gaza. Assuming some possibility of her survival, Lauk's friends and relatives took part in what has become a highly visible campaign by hostage families demanding that the Israeli government and military planners make rescue of the captives the top priority as Israeli troops push deeper into Gaza. On Monday, though, Ricardo Lauk 
took Ricardo Lope took to the German broadcaster RTL that she now assumed her daughter had been dead since the day of the attack and may have been shot in the head in the course of it. Before the confirmation of Lok's death by Israeli officials, Hebrew-language media in Israel said Israeli rescuers who include ultra-Orthodox volunteers who conduct painstaking searches for scattered bits of human remains in order to meet traditional Jewish burial requirements, found a piece of bone at the festival scene whose DNA matched that of Lok. The fragment separation of from bone structure at the base of the skull ruled out survival. The report cited rescuers as saying, Israel's main forensic institute has said it has begun declaring some victims dead based on evidence from recovered body parts of what would have been fatal injuries. Family and friends, meanwhile, surfaced dozens of other images of Lok in happier times, smiling on a palm-fringed beach giggling with friends or with a majestic mountain backdrop. Lauk's father, Nassim Lauk, told Israel's Channel 13 that despite sorrow over her death, the family is at least spared the fate of many other hostage families who fear their loved ones will be killed during Israeli ground operations or in the waves of airstrikes that have devastated the seaside territory. She isn't lying in some tunnel under Gaza where every minute we are firing at them, and all the earth is shaking, and there is dust, and it's impossible to breathe, he said. We know she is dead. That was Even Horrific News is a Relief by Laura King from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. And from the same Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023, we have this one. Israel frees soldier held by Hamas. Troops push deeper into Gaza, where the UN says hospitals are at risk. Netanyahu rejects calls for truce by Najib Jobain, Sami Magdi, and Lee Keith. Khan Yunus Gaza Strip. Israeli troops pushed deeper into Gaza on Monday, advancing in tanks and other armored vehicles on the territory's main city and freeing a soldier held captive by Hamas militants. The Israeli Prime Minister rejected a calls for a ceasefire even as airstrikes landed near hospitals where thousands of Palestinians are sheltered beside the wounded. The military said a female soldier captured during Hamas's brutal October 6-7 incursion was rescued in the Gaza Strip, the first since the week's-long war began. It provided a few, provided few details but said in a statement that Private Ori Megadish is doing well and had met with her family. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu welcomed her home, saying the achievement by Israel's security forces illustrates our commitment to free all the hostages. He also rejected calls for a ceasefire to facilitate the release of captives or end the war, which he has said will be long and difficult. Calls for a ceasefire are calls for Israel to surrender to Hamas, he said during the news conference. That will not happen. He also said he has no plans to resign in the face of mounting anger over the failure of Israel's vaunted security forces to prevent the worst surprise attack on those countries half in half a century. Hamas and other militant groups are believed to be holding more than 230 captives, including women and children. Netanyahu has faced mounting pressure to secure their release, even as Israel wages a punishing war that it says is aimed at crushing Hamas and ending its 16-year rule over the territory. Uh, Hamas, which has released four hostages, 
and said it would let the others go in return for thousands of Palestinian prisoners held by Israel, including many implicated in deadly attacks on Israelis. Israel has dismissed that offer, and Netanyahu said the ground invasion creates the possibility of getting the hostages out, adding that Hamas will only do it under pressure. Hamas released a short video Monday appropriating to show three other female captives. One of the women delivers a brief statement, probably under duress, criticizing Israel's response to the hostage crisis. It was unclear when the, when the Hamas video was made. The Associated Press usually refrains from reporting details of hostage videos because they show individuals speaking under duress and are often used for propaganda purposes. The Israeli military has been vague about its operations inside Gaza, including the location and number of troops. Israel has declared a new phase in the war, but stopped short of declaring an all-out ground invasion, even as, even as it has deployed tens of thousands of troops to the border. The movement of recent days, including larger ground operations both north and east of Gaza City, point to a focus on the city. Israel says much of Hamas's forces and militant infrastructure, including hundreds of miles of tunnels, are in Gaza City, which before the war was home to more than 650,000 people, a population comparable to that of Washington. Though Israel ordered Palestinians to flee the north, which is home to Gaza City, and move south, hundreds of thousands have stayed put, in part because Israel has also bombarded targets in so-called safe zones. About 117,000 displaced people are staying in hospitals in northern Gaza alongside thousands of patients and staff, hoping they will be safe from strikes according to United Nations figures. The UN Agency for Palestinian Refugees, known as UNRWA, says nearly 672,000 Palestinians are sheltering in its schools and other facilities across Gaza, which have reached four times their capacity. The Hamas Gaza Health Ministry said the death toll among Palestinians passed 8,300, mostly women and children. The toll, which could not be independently confirmed, is without precedent in decades of Israeli-Palestinian violence. More than 1.4 million people in Gaza have fled their homes. During Hamas's initial attack, the militants slaughtered more than 1,400 people, mostly civilians, also an unprecedented figure. Video on social media shows an Israeli tank and bulldozer in central Gaza blocking the territory's main north-south highway, which the Israeli military earlier told Palestinians to use to escape the expanding ground offensive. The video, taken by a local journalist, shows a car approaching an earthen barrier across the road. The car stops and turns around. As it heads away, a tank appears to open fire and an explosion engulfs the car. The journalist in another car races away in terror, screaming, go back, go back, and an approach, at an approaching ambulance and other vehicles. The Gaza Health Ministry later said three people were killed in the car that was hit. Rear Admiral Daniel Hagari, an Israeli military spokesman, declined to comment on where Israeli forces are deployed. He said additional infantry, armored engineering, and artillery units had entered Gaza and the operations would continue to expand and intensify. The military said troops have killed dozens of militants who attacked from inside buildings and tunnels. It said that in the last few days, 
it had struck more than 600 militant targets, including weapon depots, weapons depots and anti-tank missile launching positions. Palestinian militants have continued firing rockets into Israel, including toward its commercial hub, Tel Aviv. Hamas's military wing says its fighters clashed with Israeli troops who entered the northwestern Gaza Strip with small arms and anti-tank missiles. It was not possible to independently confirm battlefield claims made by either side. Meanwhile, crowded hospitals in northern Gaza came under growing threat. Gaza's health ministry shared the video that appeared to show an explosion and a column of smoke near the Turkish-Palestinian Friendship Hospital for cancer patients. The hospital director, Dr. Sobe Skayik, said it had sustained damage in a strike that endangered patients. Ten, uh, all ten hospitals operating in northern Gaza have received evacuation orders in recent days, the UN's Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs said. Staff members have refused to leave, saying evacuation would mean death for patients on ventilators. Tens of thousands of civilians are sheltering in Shifa Hospital, the territory's largest. Israel accuses Hamas of having a secret command post beneath the hospital, but has not provided much evidence. Hamas denies the allegations. Strikes hit within 50 yards of Al-Quds Hospital after it received two calls from Israeli authorities Sunday ordering it to evacuate, the Palestinian Red Crescent Rescue Service said. Some windows were blown out and rooms were covered in debris. The service said 14,000 people were sheltering there. Israel says that it targets Hamas fighters and infrastructure and that the militants operate among civil civilians, putting the latter in danger. Beyond the fighting, conditions in Gaza are continually deteriorating as food, water, medicine, and fuel run dangerously low amid a weeks-long Israeli siege. That was Israel Free Soldier Held by Hamas by Najib Jobain, Sami Magdi, and Lee Keith from the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 31st, 2023. Jobain, Magdi, and Keith write for the Associated Press and reported from Khan Yunus Cairo, Khan Yunus Cairo and Athens, respectively. Now let's go on to some opinion articles here. We start off with this one from the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 15, 2023. Hamas's barbarity broke my heart. Friends are breaking it a second time. After the attack in Israel, my Facebook feed filled with funeral notices and pleas for information. But I also see friends frame it as anti-colonial resistance by Nadav Ziv. Since Hamas's attack on Israel on October 7, I've stumbled between nausea, anger, grief, and numbness. The barbarity inches closer. My sister's classmate from high school lost a family member. My cousin's best friend lost her brother. A student who graduated from my high school last year is missing. My Facebook feed alternates, uh, be alternates between pleas for information and funeral announcements. Picture after picture, grandchildren and grandparents, youthful smiles and serene wisdom. Have you seen this person? Please help me find. It is with a heavy heart that I share. I see one woman, probably younger than me, shatter during a television interview. Hamas terrorists posted a video of her slain grandmother blood pooling on the floor from her grandma's own Facebook account. I worry I have not yet learned the worst of what has already happened. I worry that worse is yet to come. Amid my cascading heartbreak, I see my Jewish and Israeli friends and family share their grief. 
But I also see people I once considered friends frame Hamas's attack on civilians as anti-colonial resistance, and I break all over again. At first, this disgusting defense of violence felt far away. Protesters in Sydney, Australia chanting, Gas the Jews. A rally in New York City where one attendee taunts Israelis with a picture of a hostage and another holds up an image of a swastika. Campus organizations that defend the Hamas attacks as a counteroffensive against their settler colonial oppressor. But as Hamas's violence encroaches closer, so do, so do the justifications. I saw a friend posting on social media regurgitated quotes from the political theorist Franz Fanon's The Wretched of the Earth, pointing to excerpts uh, justifying violence as if the words were a biblical edict. Positing uh, uh, an unlimited right to violence based on victimhood is exactly what groups like the Nazis and Al-Qaeda did. Adolf Hitler argued for a genocide as a defensive measure, for if the Jews were not stopped, they would exterminate the Aryan people of Europe. Osama bin Laden, in a 2004 video sent to Al Jazeera, explained that 9-11 was simply self-defense and punishing the aggressor in kind. Never mind that the people working at the World Trade Center had nothing to do with the policies bin Laden was talking about, much like the Israeli civilians massacred by Hamas had no direct responsibility for Palestinian suffering. No one ever, anywhere in the world, has an unlimited right to violence. Not false victims like the Nazis who pinned their imagined oppression on the Jews, nor actual victims of injustice, which includes Palestinians, who have many legitimate grievances against Israeli abuses. Nor does Israel, as it embarks on a campaign to dismantle Hamas's governmental and military infrastructure, have a right to inflict unlimited violence against the many Palestinians who want nothing to do with Hamas. When Israeli settlers targeted civilians in a pogrom of a Palestinian village in March, I denounced that action without hesitation as perverting past Jewish victimhood into a right to harm innocent people. As a writer, I've helped everyone from progressive politicians to labor leaders to healthcare activists communicate their visions for a more just world. But the callous rationalizations of Hamas's killing of Jews by some groups in the U.S. are a poison pill from which many Jews like me will never recover. I will not forget how groups including the Democratic Socialists of America and Black Lives Matter Los Angeles looked at reports of Israelis being kidnapped and killed and then defe deflected blame onto the victims. In September 2019, I visited Netiv Hazara, an Israeli community very close to the border with Gaza. I met Barak, a resident in his 40s. Walking around the town, he showed our group the painted bomb shelter by the school bus station. Outside, machine gun turrets sat on a smooth concrete wall that separates Israel from Gaza. Around the wall's base, tractors buzzed. Someone asked what they're building. They're extending the wall down to prevent terrorist infiltration via tunnels, Barak responded. That effort involving 140,000 tons of iron and steel wrapped up two years later. The wall wasn't enough. Netiv Hazara was one of the places Hamas attacked on, no on October 7th, killing more than a dozen of its people. I will always remember my visit to that town, and most particularly the huge mosaic on the border was wall called Path to Peace. 
visitors are invited to write a message on a colored stone and glue it to the wall. Unscribed a wish that Barak's children in Etev Hazara and the Palestinian youth I met in Bethlehem would all grow up feeling safer. Barak smeared our group's stones with cement and we pasted them onto the mosaic in the hope that peace would come one day. Two minutes after our bus dropped off Barak at the center of town, my phone blared. Red alert, seek shelter. Netev Hazara was under attack. That was Hamas's barbarity broke my heart. Friends are breaking it a second time. By Nadav Ziv, from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 15, 2023. Nadav Ziv is a writer whose work includes essays about Judaism, anti-Semitism, and Israel. Right, here's another one from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 17, 2023. Israel and Ukraine are fronts in the same war by Jonah Goldberg. In normal times, domestic political fights over foreign policy break down more or less along a conventional left-right divide. These are not normal times. The right is usually united around the need to support Israel in its war with Hamas, but increasingly divided about backing Ukraine in its war with Russia. The left is largely united around the need to help Ukraine, but more divided about siding with Israel. It's not perfectly symmetrical. Democrats are more unified on Israel, in part because of President Biden's unequivocal support. But it's early. After all, the history of the Democratic Party resisting campus radicals and the anti-war left is not a tale of heroic resolve and that the response on campuses to a terrorist pogrom was to immediately express support for Palestinians does not suggest the left-wing fringe will come around to a more nuanced stance. Meanwhile, even though the GOP is not unified in its support for Israel, to the point where even many America firsters have abandoned all foreign policy consistency to show solidarity with Israel, on the fringes, especially on social media, skepticism over support for Israel is already growing. In some of the swampier quarters, outright anti-Semitism is breaking into the open, and Donald Trump, who has long boasted of doing more for Israel than anyone since Moses, is suddenly celebrating how very smart Hezbollah is and berating Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, which is not to say he doesn't deserve criticism, though not from Trump. Given the hothouse of a presidential election, it doesn't seem far-fetched to imagine support for Israel melting away on the new right and the anti-Zionist left as Biden becomes more identified with support for Israel. In short, inside the water's edge of domestic politics, it's a two-front war. What I think a lot of people are missing is that it's a two-front war without the water's edge, too. There's been intense an intense and bizarre debate over Iran's complicity in Hamas's attack. Iran has supported Hamas for decades. Whether it officially ordered or approved, the, in, uh, the invasion beforehand hardly erases its culpability. If you keep assassins who vow to kill Israelis on a retainer, it's hardly as an outrageous slander to say you have, someone, you have some responsibility uh, when they do. The more vital question is of Russia's involvement. Russia's disastrous war on Ukraine has drawn it ever closer to Iran, which supplies it with drones and other weapons. Both of these heavily sanctioned pariah states depend on oil revenue to stay afloat. Global instability keeps the pe uh, petrodollars flowing. 
There's no evidence that Russia greenlighted the attack, but it's clear that Putin benefits from a Middle East war that diverts Western attention and resources. Why give him the win he wants? Ukraine, which has expressed its support for Israel, certainly sees the stakes clearly. President Volodymyr Zelensky even wants to visit Israel as a show of solidarity. Opponents of aiding Ukraine dismiss any linkage, legislatively, strategically, or morally, between Israel and Ukraine. 48 hours after the Hamas attack, Senator Josh Hawley, Republican of Missouri, insisted Israel is facing existential threat. Any funding for Ukraine should be redirected to Israel immediately. The Populist Heritage Foundation declared lawmakers need to resist attempts to link emergency military support for Israel with additional funding for Ukraine. These conflicts are separate and distinct. Not really. Seeing both conflicts through a partisan lens just demonstrates how domestic partnership can blind you to the bigger picture. These are two fronts in broadly the same fight. Israel and Ukraine alike are flawed but decent democracies facing enemies who seek to erase them from the map. Israel may be a more of a historic ally than Ukraine, but their enemies are allies with shared interests. Putting all the other obvious moral and strategic considerations aside, America simply has a vital interest in maintaining its credibility to keep its commitments not just to Ukraine and Israel, but to our broader coalition of allies. After 9-11, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization got our back. Now NATO needs us to help deal with the threat on its doorstep. And if we may need and we need may need NATO if Iran opts to join the fray in Israel. Lord knows China is watching to see if we buckle. None of this requires U.S. boots on the ground. Israel or Ukraine are willing to do the fighting and dying. What they want is help in what amounts to the same war on two fronts. That was Israel and Ukraine are fronts in the same war by Jonah Goldberg. From the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, October 17, 2023. All right. Here's another opinion article from the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 18, 2023. A Palestinian, an Israeli, and a shared grief. As friends, we don't agree on all aspects of the war, but we still agree on fundamental values. Barana Shalub and Hila Kiran. We are two American women living in Los Angeles, spending our days working at one of the city's oldest law schools. One of us, Rana, is Palestinian. The other, Hila, is Israeli. We are both profoundly worried about our beloved family members in the Middle East, Jewish and Arab, who are neighbors and are all currently suffering greatly as rockets keep falling and more violence looms. Our hearts are broken by the brutal Hamas terror attack last week and by the prospect of additional deaths and misery in our respective communities. We want to say loud and clear that we condemn the cruel murder of kids, youths, parents, and grandparents by Hamas. At the same time, we support the rights of Palestinians to live in peace and with dignity, just as every human being deserves. In addition to the tragedy of terrorism and warfare in the last few days, we have also encountered painful misunderstandings and simplistic views of the dreadful conflict in the Middle East. Rana was blamed for spreading anti-Semitic ideology by classmates who failed to distinguish her genuine concern for Palestinian lives from endorsing atrocities she abhors. 
when she tried to educate her peers about the plight of innocent civilians on both sides and convince them that anti-Semitic and anti-Arab rhetoric similarly impede peace, she was unfairly accused of being an anti-Semite herself. Hila, on the other hand, faced some progressive academics who seemed to doubt, ignore, or downplay the suffering of Israelis and somehow portrayed the atrocities executed by Hamas as a justified form of Palestinian resistance. Additionally, each of us was exposed to calls for the destruction of Gaza as if there were no children, Palestinians, and kidnapped Israelis on the other side of the border from Israel. We both refused to imagine what that apocalypse would mean for the people we love and the entire region. Right after the bloody October 7 weekend, Kiva read an Israeli news outlet that the warning sirens and Hamas rockets had just reached Jerusalem. Remembering that Rana has relatives in the area, she immediately texted her. It was early morning, but Rana quickly texted back with good news and care. Thank you for checking in. They are safe, and hopefully it stays like that. I'm hoping your family and friends are safe. A few hours later, we saw each other for the first time since it all started. We hugged. It was a long hug, one of those in which you hold the other, feeling their body and heart against yours. And then came t the tears. We cried about the children who came to this world for such a brief time only to be killed by hate. We wept because we were so afraid of what was to come. We are still scared. We, are also, we also experienced a brisk sense of relief. Without words, we somehow knew the other understands exactly how it feels to have your roots in this corner of the world. See, so we just held each other a second longer, mourning the losses. Our hug... The words that followed it and the comfort we found in each other would not have been possible had we assumed, like many others, that all Palestinians are ready to kill Jewish Israelis or at least cheer when they die. Nor would any of that have happened if we presumed that all Jewish people are eager to harm Palestinians or seek their elimination. Those assumptions are awful and wrong. They lead to innocent people trapped by a ceaseless conflict paying with their lives. Of course, our close connection does not mean we agree on all aspects of this catastrophic situation, but we feel grateful that our true care for each other has at least allowed us to unite around two things. One relates to the present, the value of mourning together all loss of innocent human life. The other relates to the future, the belief that humanity on both sides is key to breaking the vicious circle created by hate. Do we know how to bring more peace to the area in which our families live? Not at all. Like most, we are still devastated and terrified and have no clue. But at this horrific moment, our relationship has taught us we can start by not selectively grieving those with whom we share religion or national origin while having no sorrow for those on the other side are killed. Fortunately, to be away from the war, we found a space for our mutual belief in human lives. We then learned that just before the latest hideous events, our Israeli and Palestinian sisters had the courage and vision to hold a joint gathering in Jerusalem to demonstrate and affirm their commitment to a non-violent resolution. Had we been there, we would have probably joined, and we want to encourage others to search together for more ways to embrace and protect the fragile wish for better days. In fact, 
even as the recent tragedy has pushed some to take extreme positions and make regrettable statements, many organizations remain united and committed to working together to prevent escalation and continue their tireless search for common ground. For example, the Alliance for Middle East Peace, a coalition of over 170 organizations and tens of thousands of Palestinians and Israelis stated, Al-Mep, A-L-L-M-E-P, stands in solidarity with our members across the region. The brave Israelis and Palestinians who refuse to be enemies and who are working to shape a reality where events such as those witnessed over the past few days become unimaginable. Our members are speaking loudly and clearly about the values that unite our community. Opposition to this horrific violence and the commitment to Israeli-Palestinian partnership on the path to end it, ending it and achieving peace and equality. So even at this dark time, we dare to hope that we are not alone and many people still believe in collective humanity and instead of alienating one another, will work to bring, help bring some light. If you are wrong, those fueled by hate have already won. That was a Palestinian and Israeli and a shared grief by Rana Shalub and Hila Kiran from the Opinions section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, October 18, 2023. Rana Shalub is a third-year law student, a teaching assistant, and a board member of the International Law Society at Southwestern Law School, Los Angeles. Hila Kiran is the Associate Dean for Research and a Professor of Law at Southwestern Law School, Los Angeles. All right, here's another one from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 19, 2023. Balance support for Israel with promoting peace. This is the right approach for the U.S. in the Mideast conflict, offering diplomatic support and humanitarian aid. By Dr. Patrick Soon-Chiang, Executive Chairman. The October 7 attack on Israelis by Hamas militants was an unspeakable act of terrorism and Israel has every right to use military force to prevent future such atrocities. But in doing so, it must stay true to its values by doing everything possible to minimize the suffering of innocent Palestinians, uh, Palestinian resistance up to Gaza. That seemed to be President Biden's message for Israelis when he spoke Wednesday in Tel Aviv, reminding his hosts that the vast majority of Palestinians are not Hamas. Hamas does not represent the Palestinian people. Biden expressed solidarity with the Israeli people and promised that he would ask Congress for an unprecedented support package for Israel's defense. He adroitly combined that statement of support with a gentle but unmistakable plea for Israel to achieve clarity about the objectives and an honest assessment about whether the path you're on will achieve those objectives. This is the appropriate role for the U.S. to play at this stage. The president recalled that after 9-11, we were enraged in the United States. We, While we sought justice and got justice, we also made mistakes. Israel should take that wise counsel to heart as it continues its campaign to destroy Hamas, which might soon involve an invasion of Gaza. Israeli air bombardment of the congested territory has killed at least 3,400 people, according to Gaza health authorities. That Israel does not target civilians is small comfort for the families of those killed or wounded. Nor can civilians be sure that relocating will spare them from harm. The New York Times reported this week 
that Palestinians who heeded an Israeli order to evacuate portions of the Gaza Strip and head south are enduring airstrikes even after they have moved. Biden also announced that Israel had agreed to allow humanitarian assistance to enter Gaza from Egypt. It's appalling that trucks laden with food and supplies have been stalled in Egypt near the Gaza border. He also promised an additional $100 million in humanitarian assistance for Gaza and the West Bank. The president had hoped on this visit to the Middle East to meet in Jordan with Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas and Egyptian President Abdel Fattah Sisi. But the meeting was canceled after Abbas withdrew following an explosion at a hospital in Gaza on Tuesday. Biden said that the U.S. believes the explosion was the result of an errant rocket fired by a terrorist group in Gaza, as Israel has insisted. Uh, finally, it's important that Biden in his remarks Wednesday expressed support for the elusive two-state solution in which Israel would peacefully coexist with the Palestinian state. He indicated that his administration would continue to keep working for Israel's greater integration with its neighbors. Now, as so often in the past, the United States must balance its support for Israel with its mission of promoting peace and cooperation in a volatile region. The vicious attack by Hamas and its awful aftermath make that quest more, not less, urgent. That was Balanced Support for Israel with Promoting Peace by Dr. Patrick Sunchion, Executive Chairman, from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 19, 2023. All right, here's one more from the Opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 20th, 2023. Israel's failed Gaza strategy has to change by Raphael S. Cohen. The phrase mowing the grass has been the bumper sticker version for Israeli strategy in Gaza for the last decade and a half. It plays out in the following way. Palestinians, frustrated by the state of the enclave, turn to the likes of Hamas for, if nothing else, vengeance against Israel. Israel imposes restrictions such as the blockade on Gaza, citing security concerns. Living conditions in Gaza deteriorate further and discontent builds. Hamas, Palestinian Islamic Jihad, and others capitalize on the discontent and attack Israel, and Israel responds by mowing the grass killing the perpetrators along with some number of civilians, buying at best a few years of relative peace and fueling further long-term radicalization. And so the cycle continues ad infinitum. Mowing the grass embodies more than just strategic fatalism. It also reflects a large measure of hubris. At its core lies the assumption that Israel can control the rheostat in Gaza, hitting Hamas just hard enough to deter it from attacking Israel, but not so hard that Gaza implodes into chaos or explodes into a regional war. As one Israeli defense analyst said of the 2014 Gaza war, we want to break their bones without putting them in the hospital. That is a hard, if not impossible, balance to strike year after year, especially as Gaza's internal pressures mount. Its two million inhabitants are packed into an area roughly the size of Philadelphia, 80% of them impoverished and 46% unemployed. Some 108,000 cubic meters of untreated sewage flow daily from the Gaza Strip into the Mediterranean Sea, and potable water can be hard to come by. Against this backdrop, and absent any path 
to something better for Gazans, no military strategy to contain the violence can succeed in the long run. Without a safety valve, Gaza was bound to explode. Israel's mowing the grass strategy finally failed spectacularly on October 7. The Hamas attack underscored just how little control Israel has over Gaza. It was not just an intelligence failure and an operational failure, but also a more sweeping strategic failure. The core premise behind Israel's entire approach was proved catastrophically wrong in one morning. Whether Israel has internalized this strategic failure remains a separate, open question. Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has promised to restore deterrence to Israel's borders, and the country is mobilizing some 360 reservists, functionally tripling the Israel Defense Forces. This all points to a doubling down, more mowing of the grass. From a purely military perspective, Israel's hardest days are likely ahead. Hamas's extensive tunnel network underneath Gaza and threat to execute scores of hostages makes a large-scale ground invasion likely. The last time Israel fought a ground war in Gaza in 2014, it lasted 50 days, flattening large swaths of the Strip and left more than 70 Israelis and 2,000 Palestinians dead. The current Gaza war's toll has already surpassed that in just a few days, and any ground incursion has yet to begin. But once all the killing is done, Israel will have to do something even harder if it's to have any hope of preventing the next war and the war and the one after that. It will need to rebuild Gaza into something better than it was. That means ensuring Gaza's inhabitants have a chance at economic prosperity, potentially even at the risk of loosening the blockade. That means ensuring Gaza's inhabitants have political options apart from Hamas and the corrupt and pliant Palestinian Authority. And it means rebuilding the social fabric of Gaza, which will likely be even more tattered after what could be a devastating war that could leave the enclave that much more hostile to Israel. That is not only a, cost, a costly propos, a proposition of the sort that militaries are not particularly adept at, it would also be difficult for the Israeli public to scup to stomach, particularly given the size and scale of Hamas's recent atrocities. It is nevertheless what's necessary to end the cycle of mowing the grass only to watch it grow back. That was Israel's failed Gaza strategy has to change by Raphael S. Cohen from the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 20, 2023. Raphael S. Cohen is the director of the, Stra the Strategy Doctrine Program, uh, Project Air Force at the Rand Corp, and the lead author of From Cast Lead to Protective Edge, Lessons from Israel's War in Gaza. All right, let's move on to some other news here. This is from the City and State section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, October 27th, 2023. Man threatened Jewish residents during home invasion, police say, by Christian Mart Martinez. A man was arrested early Wednesday morning after allegedly attempting to break into a Studio City home and threatening the Jewish occupants, an incident authorities say is being investigated as a possible hate crime. The home invasion was reported around 5 a.m., at the 3000 block of Laurel Canyon Boulevard, according to the Los Angeles Police Department. The suspect is identified as Daniel Garcia, uh, is accused of entering the home's backyard and trying to kick in a door. He was held at bay by an occupant, who then contacted the police. 
Garcia, who was wearing only underwear, was heard yelling, Free Palestine and kill Jews, the LAPD said. Police said the victims were identified as being of Jewish descent. Footage captured by KTTV-TV Channel 11 showed the suspect yelling Free Palestine several times after being placed into the back of an LAPD vehicle. In addition, an additional video taken by a neighbor, uh, the man can be heard yelling incoherent responses to police and stating that he was not armed. Garcia, possibly suffering from mental illness, acted alone and his actions appeared motivated by the victim's religious beliefs, the LAPD said. Garcia may have had previous contacts with the victims, police said. He was arrested on suspicion of stalking and making criminal threats with the hate crime enhancement. He is being held in lieu of $225,000 bail. This is one of the worst fears of Jewish families across our country. Hatred spilling over the threshold, destroying the sense of safety and sanctuary in a home, Los Angeles Mayor Karen Bass said in a statement. We remain steadfast in support of the Jewish people. The people of Los Angeles will not cower to hate. That was men threatened Jewish residents during home invasion, police say, by Christian Martinez from the city and state section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, October 27, 2023. Right, here's something from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 29, 2023. The most meaningful deal he ever negotiated. Hockey agent turned his parents' experiences as Holocaust survivors into book, possibly movie too, by Helen Elliott. Ron Salser knew that his brilliant father secured patents on 16 inventions that ranged from plastic tablecloths to unbreakable roller hockey pucks, and he sensed that William Salser's physical and mental strength had allowed him to survive the Holocaust and make a new life. Ron knew his mother, Katerina, also uh, from a small town in Czechoslovakia, was a Holocaust survivor, too. He was aware her family had been wiped out. I never met a grandparent, never met an uncle, I never met a cousin, Ron said. I had one aunt, my father's sister, who survived also. But he didn't know about the horrors William endured at the infamous Mauthausen concentration camp, or that in a heart-stopping moment, Nazis chose Katerina to work rather than be killed because she was young and strong. He didn't know William was forced marched through Austria or that Katarina was limited to 10 sips a day of rotten soup at Auschwitz. Willie and Katie, as they were known, refused to discuss any of it. Not when Ron was, uh, was, uh, was young, and not after they emigrated to Israel and then to New York, where Ron grew up before he moved to Southern California and launched a successful career as an agent for hockey players. His clientele include many of the many members of the Kings and several Hall of Famers. In his job, Ron bravely fought for players' rights and helped unseat the unscrupulous Allen Eagleson as head of the NHL Players Association. But for a long time, Ron didn't know the true meaning of bravery because his parents refused to describe how they'd survived after being herded into a Jewish ghetto and sent to concentration camps. They never went to any detail, and if I ever tried to talk about it, they would go in a different direction, said Ron, who was born in Israel. I don't know how my mother or father were able to put their head on the pillow and compartmentalize their life the way they did after what they saw and how much they suffered. Yet they had the courage to pick themselves up 
and close that chapter and move on in their lives, have incredible joy and success and children and grandchildren and every and everything they did. Ron's life changed when he saw Steven Spielberg's Schindler's List, the 1993 movie about the industrialist Oscar Schindler saving the lives of more than a thousand Jews sharpened Ron's curiosity about his parents' ordeal, prompting him to ask them to tell their story for his two daughters, his sister's three kids, and their uh, and for posterity. Willie and Katie agreed to speak to the USC-based survivors of the Shoah Visual History Foundation, reliving their pain as they were filmed separately and together. Ron was overwhelmed when he saw the videos. His father, he said, was a tough guy and I never ever saw my dad ever even tear up, ever. The only time I ever saw it was in the video when he talked about the death march. When he saw the Americans, the Americans saved him. That launched Ron, a longtime South Bay resident, on a mission to preserve their testimony as a love story and a cautionary tale. He began by commissioning author D.Z. Stone to interview his parents and compile their experiences in a manuscript. Willie and Katie gave Stone permission to turn it into a book, but Stone's inquiries with publishers went nowhere, and she put the manuscript on the shelf. Willie died in 2006, and Katie died in 2015. I felt kind of like I failed, Stone said, and Willie said to me, don't worry, it's just before it's time. You'll see. He was prophetic. More than a decade later, Ron asked Stone to contact publishers again. She didn't expect much interest and was surprised when she got four offers. She and Ron chose Valentine Mitchell, the, organ the original publisher of Anne Frank's Holocaust Diary, to publish No Past Tense, Love and Survivor, Love and Survival in the Shadow of the Holocaust in 2019. Written through Will's and Katie's voices, the book brings to life their loving banter and stark recollections and is a valuable resource for academic studies of the Holocaust. Stone added some fine detective work. Will doubted Katie's mention of having worked at a hidden munitions factory in Lichtenau, Germany, suggesting trauma altering her memory. Stone found records of the factory's existence and others who worked there. I didn't think I was the writer for the project. I expected them to be sort of broken people for being Holocaust survivors. I really hadn't known any, and then and they were as regal, elegant, and articulate a couple of a couple as I'd ever met, said Stone, who spoke to them an hour or two at a time, a few days a week for a year pausing when they were overwhelmed with emotion. I tried to talk to my I tried to talk myself out of it and said, you know, I'm only part Jewish. I was raised among my father's Polish Catholic relatives with all these Poles, and I could imagine my relatives back in Krakow throwing rocks at Jews. And he looked at me and said, Well then, you understand anti Semitism, don't you? And that's what I wanted to write the book and that's when I wanted to write the book if they'd have me. The book drew rave reviews from Holocaust scholars. Dr. Holly Levitsky has used it while teaching in Loyola Marymount's Jewish Studies program, and she invited Ron to speak to her students to add his perspective on his parents. It's a universal story, a full trajectory of the Holocaust experience that there's life before and that there was life a life after it, and including love, Levitsky said of the book and also that it included real-life happening at the time 
uh, these horrors were going on and people were being displaced and murdered. Levitsky told Ron that Stone's writing style made the book suitable for a cinematic presentation. As Ron winds down his agent business, he plans to focus on developing the book into a movie or miniseries. All this happened organically. I didn't expect any of it. I didn't push any of it, he said. Now I'm thinking I'd like to go to the next step. That would be unbelievable. Levitsky can see the book's potential to become a powerful movie. When I recommend it to people, and I have recommended it to so many of my colleagues, that's what I say about it, that this is a real cinematic rendering of that story that includes both a love story and a Holocaust story in equal parts, and who doesn't love a, uh, a love story in a film, she said. If you can put a love story into a Holocaust story, God bless you, that's great. It's a timeless tale on many levels, including the anti-Semitism Willie and Katie faced. Levitsky recently devoted part of her class on world Jewish literature to discussing Israel and helping students process the violent footage of the Israel-Gaza conflict they see on their phones and laptops. Her students might not have known much about the Holocaust, but they're learning the sad truth that hatred, like love, is eternal. The only lesson we learned, and unfortunately, as I see the news every day right now, it's not a lesson that we learned, but never forget these atrocities, Levitsky said. I believe as a scholar and as a Jew that we should never forget how it happened and that we can't let it happen again. And if that means I, that I teach it every year to students and they know less and less about it, then it's even more important that we continue to teach it. I work hard to mentor younger scholars to show the importance of keeping alive the field of Holocaust studies, and I don't think it's going anywhere. And I'll tell you why. It's a, it's, and it's a sad reason. I think we are nowhere near done in our world with violence and the effect of trauma on people, on peoples of that violence. So if the Holocaust can act as a remembrance of that absolute evil, then it should continue to be taught into eternity. That was the most meaningful deal he ever negotiated <clears throat> by Helen Elliott from the sports section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29, 2023. All right, here is a couple of articles from the California section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, October 29, 2023. This first one is Jewish Angelino's New Reality. Amid anguish, anger, and fear over Israel-Hamas fighting, many are drawing together in community more and strengthening their resolve. By Summer Lynn, Nathan Solis, and Grace Tohi. Los Angeles is home to the second-largest Jewish community in America, with more than 500,000 members, and for the last few weeks, it's been reeling. Since the ambush by Hamas militants left more than 1,400 Israelis dead and saw the kidnapping of at least 200 others, Israel has sealed off the Gaza Strip from vital resources and launched a barrage of airstrikes. Jewish Angelinos are largely supportive of Israel, which declared war on Hamas, the local authority in Gaza, following the deadly October 7 attack. Many also disagree with the military assault in Gaza and are heartbroken over the mounting Palestinian death toll, which has exceeded 7,000, including nearly 3,000 children, according to the Palestinian Health Ministry in Gaza. About 1.4 million Palestinians have been displaced, and Gaza's health care system is teetering on the brink of collapse as water, fuel, and vital medicines are running out 
according to the World Health Organization. The world is watching as Israel mounts an all-out invasion of Gaza. The war is creating dual tragedies across the Israel-Gaza boundary, and in LA's Jewish community, whose members hail from different backgrounds, ideologies, cultures, and religious sects, people are coming together in ways they hadn't before. Amid the anguish and anger, the confusion and conflicts, some have found a new kind of resolve and a new community. Uh, the a crowd held its breath at, the, at Sinai Temple as Neely Salem played an extended note on the shofar, an instrument typically made from a ram's horn and used in important Jewish rituals. I believe that artists are the, uh, the healers of our time, Chloe Pormorati said outside the Westwood Synagogue, where about 100 people gathered for a night of solidarity after uh, weeks after the initial attack on Israel. Music is something beyond words that connects people and brings comfort, poor, poor Moratti said. For many Jews in Los Angeles, there are few degrees of separation between the U.S. and Israel. The extent of death and warfare in the region, considered the Holy Land for Jews, Muslims, and Christians alike, has been staggering and has hit close to home. Pormorati was initially planning a musical gathering for friends, but felt compelled to invite the public so the community could dance, sing, and cry together. Music is being used as a tool for comfort, healing, and prayer during this time of great sadness and anguish, said cantor Marcus Feldman, uh, who oversees the musical department at Sinai Temple and who sang at the event, which included performances in both Hebrew and English. Emotions overtook many that night. Mickey Pauker's voice broke before he started singing. He told the congregation that in the last few weeks he'd been calling a white supremacist for supporting he'd been called a white supremacist for supporting Israel. Azar Elihu, a former temple member, said that pain is universal and she grieves for both sides. I even feel for the Palestinians. I cried so much for the little boy that was killed in Chicago, she said, referring to six-year-old Wadia Al-Fayomi, a Muslim boy who was stabbed dozens of times in a deadly attack carried out by his family's landlord. But after the musical performance, Elihu said, this felt like something of a healing. Nicole Gusick, a senior rabbi at Sinai Temple, said that in the weeks following the declaration of war, many in their Jewish community had drawn closer together, checking on one, checking on one another. He asked, are you sleeping? Are you eating? Did you cry today? But they are also filled with outrage and fear as both anti-Semitic and anti-Muslim rhetoric abound online and in person. While some in Israel have called for a full attack on Gaza, including a ground invasion, Sinai Temple congregants say they worry about innocent lives lost. I think what gets lost is that there isn't a single Jew or Israeli who wants to see a single hair hurt on the head of any innocent civilian, said Jason Cosgrove, who grew up in the synagogue and said he now finds himself explaining the war in Israel to his seven-year-old daughter and wondering when he will have to discuss anti-Semitism with her. I'm sparing her all the gory details, said Cosgrove, who finds himself taking breaks from the news when he can, but who also feels compelled to stay up to date on what's happening. I think you obviously can't bury your head at a time like this. Amanda Kogan, 
who was on the board of directors at Sinai Temple, also finds herself in the difficult position of trying to explain the war to her children. Her teenage daughter recently attended an event that involved a bus trip in Los Angeles, and the group was accompanied by an armed guard. Kogan said, as she was doing her best to explain the complicated history between Israel and the Palestinians to her kids, noting that she doesn't want to sanitize the details, but that she also doesn't want to alarm them. I also don't want them to be afraid to go to school, Kogan said. I don't want my daughter to be afraid to wear a Jewish star. War is not fair to the innocent people. It's terrible, she added. We're trying to explain all of this as best as we can in a very balanced manner, and no matter what, it's all horrific. Sinai Temple boasts roughly 5,000 members and includes a private Jewish day school with about 600 students, a recreation center, and a mental health center that offers counseling for the community. Members say their support for Israel is unwavering and have gathered supplies including headlamps, tents, blankets, and phone chargers to be sent in care packages, which also include notes from children but grief hangs heavily over the community. As you walk through the halls here, it feels like a house of mourning, said Senior Rabbi Erez Sherman. He and Guzik, his wife, became senior rabbis after the Hamas attack as they worked to console their congregation. S.D. Chandler was a child living in Israel during the 1973 Yom Kippur War fought between Israel and a coalition of Arab states led by Syria and Egypt. At the time, she worried every time her parents left their house at night. She would sometimes hear air raid sirens go up and hide with the rest of her family in the unfinished basement of their apartment building. Even back then, we had those places to go in. Now, Israelis have safe rooms in their homes, the 50-year-old said. But Palestinians who are being bombed, they have nothing. They don't have to choose. They, have, they don't have those rooms to run into. They have no way to protect their children. When Chandler awoke to the news that Israel had declared war on Hamas, she started reaching out to friends and family living overseas. Then she reached out to her colleagues at Jewish Voice for Peace, whose Los Angeles chapter she founded nearly 13 years ago. My heart sank thinking about what we were surely going to start seeing in the hours, days, and weeks to come, and unfortunately that has all borne out, she said. Jewish Voice for Peace and another Jewish organization, if not now, have staged protests outside the White House and the homes of other politicians demanding a ceasefire. Hundreds have been arrested while protesting at the U.S. Capitol in Washington. While working for former President Obama's 2008 campaign, Chandler said she saw the intersection between the Israeli lobby and the Democratic Party politics. She was upset by a lot of horribly racist things that were happening and tried to educate herself as much as possible about Israel. Chandler later discovered Jewish Voice for Peace, which was supporting a movement at UC Berkeley to divest from weapons manufacturers providing arms to Israel. The group contacted Chandler and asked whether she would be interested in starting an L.A. chapter. The daughter of an Israeli father, Chandler has relatives and friends in Israel and some fighting in the Israel Defense Forces, Israel's na national military. She also has friends whose family members were killed in Gaza by the Israeli airstrikes. My concern for my family's safety and my friend's safety doesn't stop at the border, she said. It's not a choice that has to be made. I don't understand how people's hearts can bleed in the same situation for only one half of the people who are bleeding. 
One of Chandler's friends is L.A. resident Hedab Tarifi, a Palestinian advocate and member of the Los Angeles Council of Religious Leaders. Tarif has lost 69 family members in the bombings in Gaza. I have a roller coaster of emotions, said Tarif, who was born in Gaza and moved to L.A. in the mid-1990s. I woke up in the middle of the night and I can't breathe. I want to cry, but I can't cry. I'm mad and at the same time, because I have to be their voice, I have to swallow my pain and my anger and remind myself that they don't have a voice while they're being bombed and massacred, she said. I need to pull myself together and be their voice. Chandler and other Jewish Voice for Peace supporters want a ceasefire. He had been protesting in Los Angeles and recently attended a county supervisors meeting where a resolution condemning Hamas and supporting Israel was unanimously adapted after tense public comments. She has been disheartened by media portrayals of the war as simply a battle between Israel and Hamas, noting that the events of October 7 didn't come in a vacuum. You can't say that anything happened there is unprovoked. You have people who have been living under siege for 75 years. People have been living in a state of constant ethnic cleansing. While her support of Palestinian rights may seem unconventional in light of her heritage, Chandler said she wouldn't be deterred even if friends and family have opposing views. My family loves me anyway, she said. When Moore Hayim finally turned on the TV on October 7, breaking her usual observance of Shabbat, she watched as dozens of Ham- uh, she watched as Hamas trucks bulldoze through a neighborhood in Sidorot, an Israeli city near Gaza where she lived until the age of seven. She immediately recognized the street where her cousin lived. Life was sucked out of me at that second, said Haim, 31. Luckily, none of her family was killed, but the grief has been no less soul-crushing. The brother of her cousin's wife went on a run the morning of the ambush and was killed. Many childhood friends were slain. A A friend's father died shielding his children. Even though I'm far away, I feel as if I'm physically there, said Haim, a dual Israeli-American citizen who lives in Woodland Hills. Since that night, Haim said she has, she has had, she's had panic attacks and has been unable to sleep well. She said she tries to go about her daily life for the sake of her four young children. She's found solace begging challah with friends and family or just sitting in silence with others who share her pain. But the images from that day are seared in her mind and she is afraid. I'm scared for my safety. I'm scared for my children's safety, she said. I'm scared to walk on the uh, to talk on the phone in public, word that someone will recognize my accent and say, "Hey, she's Jewish." We've been we've kind of been in hiding," she said. Haim wa- Haim, uh, wants people to understand why the attack on Israel carried out on the holiday of Simchat Torah, a day meant for rejoicing, cannot be ignored. She said, "No one wants innocent people to die, not our people and not their people in Gaza." But Jewish people can't stand idly by, and Israelis must fight to defend their country, their people, she said. We said never again when we went through the Holocaust, and this is the never again, she said. It feels like we're screaming our life out and nobody's hearing us. That was Jewish Angelino's New Reality by Summer Lynn, Nathan Solis, and Greg Tuhi from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29, 2023. 
And here's the second article from the same California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29th, 2023. Advisor resigns over online posts. Soto Martinez aide made Holocaust jokes about comedian Amy Schumer by David Zanazer. A high-level aide to Los Angeles City Councilmember Hugo Soto Martinez resigned Friday after facing criticism for making Holocaust jokes about comedian Amy Schumer on social media. Josh Androsky, senior advisor to Soto Martinez, took part in an exchange on X, formerly known as Twitter, earlier in the day that featured puns about concentration camps and what appeared to be disparaging remarks about Schumer's weight. By the end of the day, the messages from Androsky, who had worked as a political consultant for at least three of the council's 15 members, had been condemned by several civic leaders, including Mayor Karen Bass. The anti-Semitic and misogynistic comments made today were reprehensible, disgusting, and dangerous, and in no way represent the city family, Bass said in a statement. Especially now, City Hall must be a beacon of hope, not hate. I'm glad the staffer responsible has resigned. Soto Martinez, in a separate statement, called the post from his employee disturbing and reprehensible. With anti-Semitism on the rise in recent years, and especially in recent weeks, cracking jokes about the Holocaust isn't just disgusting, it's dangerous, said Soto Martinez, who chairs the Council's Civil Rights Committee. Those anti-Semitic and misogynistic posts sicken me, and I have accepted his resignation effective immediately. The Andrusky incident appeared to have begun Friday morning, when the social media account for True Anon a podcast took aim at Schumer, who had posted a political cartoon derided as offensive to Palestinians living in Gaza and to protesters seeking to end the bloodshed there. The True Anon account wrote that Schumer, who frequently posts about the October 7 attack on Israel, is particularly sensitive to Jewish death due to her experience in the Holocaust. The Nazis named a concentration camp after her. It was called Dachau. The True Anon account wrote, offering a pun on Dachau, where more than 40,000 prisoners were killed, according to some estimates. Androsky, a one-time comedian who is Jewish himself, responded by saying, It's F up that you would say this about her when you know it was actually Kauschwitz. Later, in an apparent reference to a sprawling cattle farm near the Five Freeway, Androsky took another dig at Schumer, writing, I called it Kauschwitz. Either way, they all and Amy smelled the same. Androsky did not respond to multiple inquiries from the Times. He initially deleted his post and then his entire account. Schumer has not publicly commented on the controversy. She described her Jewish heritage in one recent Instagram post mentioning a relative who had numbers from uh, Auschwitz burned into his forearm. In another she apologized for making hurtful remarks about Gazans, promising to be more careful. The reaction to Androsky's post was swift among LA's Jewish community leaders. Jake Flynn, a spokesperson for Councilmember Bob Blumenfield, said his boss had seen Androsky's message and was appalled. Sam Yebri, an activist who sits on the board of the legal services nonprofit Bet Zedek, called the post distasteful and anti-Semitic. The fact that a city employee felt it was okay to make these words in a public forum with such utter disregard for any consequences is shameful, he said in an interview. Androsky, an outspoken progressive, 
has been heavily involved in city politics in recent years, working as a consultant for the campaign of Councilmember Nithya Rahman in 2020 and Councilmember Unisis Hernandez last year. Soto Martinez paid Androsky's political consulting firm, Bright Future LA, nearly $108,000 for services performed as part of last year's council campaign, according to ethics commission records. He also worked on the unsuccessful council bid of attorney Eric Darling on the west side. Androsky left Bright Future LA when he took a job with Soto Martinez, uh, said Anne Freemuth, who is listed on state business forms as a manager or member of that firm. Androsky has long been known for his glib takes on social media. In February 2022, as Russia's military was launching its invasion of Ukraine, he posted on Twitter, Putin's bad, NATO's bad, but the vibes here at Buca de Beppo, pretty good. In 2017, Androsky tweeted a joke about Bill Cosby that was denounced by some as insensitive to victims of sexual assault. He issued an apology and announced he was stepping back from his work with the LA chapter of Democratic Socialists of America, according to an archived DSA post. Naomi Goldman, a one-time spokesperson for former councilmember Mike Bonin, said on her social media account that Androsky's career should be placed on the no-fly list. I would have vastly preferred to see Josh Androsky swiftly fired by Soto Martinez with a strong leadership stance versus letting him decide his own outcome, she wrote. But at least he's gone from City Hall. That was Advisor Resigns Over Online Posts by David Zonizer from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, October 29, 2023. All right, here is another opinion article. From the opinion section of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, October 12th, 2023. The downfall of FTX and a founder averse to grown-ups. Sam Bankman-Fried, on trial for fraud, must have known the risk of not hiring managers for the business. By Eric Posner. Effective altruists believe they should devote themselves to benefiting others the best they can. Take, some take this position to extremes by pursuing the highest paying jobs they can find and then donating the riches to vetted charities that save the most lives per dollar deployed. One of the most famous effective altruists, Sam Bankman fried is currently on trial for fraud. In Michael Lewis's new book, Going Infinite, Bankman fried is portrayed sympathetically as a brilliant, humane, but emotionally crippled figure. Though he seems to lack the capacity to feel empathy for those around him, he reaches himself into the effective altruist utilitarian outlook. After earning a physics degree from MIT, Bankman Free joined the trading firm Jane Street, where he learned to arbitrage small price differences between assets. He proved to be quite good at quickly identifying, calculating, and, ex and executing gambles. But as Bankman Fried surely understood, Jane Street simply leached rents from the financial system rather than doing anything to benefit humanity. So he left to find a better use for his talents. He soon noticed that price discrepancies were much greater in cryptocurrency markets where poorly designed exchanges and the absence of regulation had kept professionals away. So when he founded the hedge fund Alameda Research, where he made millions of dollars by replicating Jane Street's arbitrage strategies in more fertile hunting grounds. 
recognizing that the crypto market needed a better designed exchange that professional traders would be willing to use, Bankman Fried enlisted his friend Gary Wang to write the code for FTX. An exchange can be extremely profitable because it takes a cut of every trade without taking much risk. FTX innovated by closing out trades extremely rapidly to minimize the risk that uh, a trader's collateral was insufficient to cover losses, which would require FTX itself to spread that loss to other traders. Because dozens of crypto exchanges already existed, Bankman Freed needed to lure their customers to FTX and bring in as many crypto trading novices as possible. So he donated hours pitching FTX on television and donated large sums to political candidates, Democrats and Republicans alike, hoping, hoping that the government could be persuaded to license FTX's business. To support FTX, Alameda was enlisted as a market maker, stepping in to buy or sell on the opposite side of the exchange when not enough traders materialized. But of course, Alameda needed funds to take the losing sides of trades and to hold on to their assets until they could be resold. Bankman Fried allowed it to borrow to uh, allowed it to borrow an unlimited amount of money from FTX, effectively using customers' funds to backstop those same customers' trades. The risk minimization technology was a mirage. This may explain how FTX gained its competitive advantage over the other exchanges. FTX customers got good terms, never realizing that they were exposed to massive risk. When they finally learned the truth, they withdrew their money and the house of cards collapsed. The government alleges that Bankman Freed, the majority owner of both firms, deliberately gambled with customer funds. Bankman Freed claims that he did not know that Alameda owed $8 billion to FTX. He also contends that he was not making fraudulent statements when he or FTX offered various assurances that customer funds were protected and that FTX was fine up to its collapse. Lewis seems to believe him, but the law defines fraud to encompass reckless disregard of the truth. Bankman Freed must have understood that he was taking extravagant risks by refusing to hire qualified financial and legal experts to oversee his business, risks that are well documented by Lewis. Bankman Freed's aversion to grown-ups likely will turn out to be criminal in managing a $32 billion firm. Moreover, as Lewis shows, because Bankman Freed was never very honest or straightforward with people, few employees were in a position to spot trouble bring it to his attention, or expect him to be responsive. More to the point, there is reason to think that he knew he, what he was doing all along. Lewis recounts Bankman Freed's habit of calculating an EV expected value for all his uh, uh, actions, including things as trivial as keeping a promise to attend a meeting or speaking event. He would mentally assign a probability that a particular meeting would generate revenue for his firm or possibly value for society, multiply it by that value, then compare it to alternatives. The 19th century British philosopher Henry Sidgwick might point to this case as an ob object lesson of the risks when fallible humans employ utilitarian, utilitarian thinking. But that is probably not how Bankman Freed would see it, even now. The question is whether the, the collapse of his financial empire 
and the damage inflicted on its employees, customers, and investors was justified by the expected social payoff had FTX survived. Serving a long prison sentence for fraud was itself a part of the downside risk that uh, discounted to present value surely shrank to nothing relative to the potential payoff of saving humanity. FTX was a gamble, and Bankman-Fried was exceeding, exceedingly confident of his ability to calculate the expected value of big gambles. That was The Downfall of FTX and the Founder Averse to Grown-Ups by Eric Posner from the Opinions section of the Los Angeles Times, Thursday, October 12, 2023. Eric Posner, a professor at the University of Chicago Law School, is the author of How Antitrust Failed Workers. Let's turn to some entertainment news. This is from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, October 9, 2023. Setting bar higher and higher. Pink is on top of the world as she talks up acrobatic shows and powerhouse women. By Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. Pink is on the phone between tour dates, two stadium gigs in her hometown of Philadelphia behind her, and one coming up in a few days in Nashville, Tennessee, which brings a question to mind, would she ever make a country record? Oh, I've made country records, the singer replies, pointing to duets with Chris Stapleton, Keith Urban, and Kenny Chesney, the last of which went to number one on country radio in 2016. But what about an album-length immersion? Maybe a Dolly Porter wag uh, Wagoner style? Uh, set with Stapleton. Nah, she said with a laugh, I don't do whole albums of anything. That much is true. One of Pop's biggest voices, Pink, 44, has been making eclectic, if reliably hit-filled, LP since 2000, cheering among slick R&B jams, crunchy pop bangers, pump rock bangers, rootsy acoustic numbers, and sweeping power ballads with a message of self-empowerment that somehow never feels sappy. Her latest, Trustfall, extends the streak. After Kids in Love, a campfire-ish tune featuring Swedish folk duo First Aid Kit, Pink moves directly into the roller disco-ready Never Gonna Not Dance Again, which she cut with veteran Top 40 maestro Max Martin. What holds it all together is Pink's singing, as technically assured as it is bleeding with emotion and a friendly yet unvarnished personality. It's a combination that has helped the singer born Alicia Moore land 36 songs on Billboard's Hot 100, including Get the Party Started, Who Knew, So What, Razor Glass, Try, What About Us, Just Give Me a Reason, Just Give Me a Reason. Yet she might best showcase her talent on the road, where she complements her live vocals with high-flying aerial work a la Cirque du Soleil. Pink, who's married to former motor motocross racer Carrie Hart, who, with whom she has a 12-year-old daughter, Willow, and a 6-year-old son, Jameson, stopped at Inglewood's SoFi Stadium on Thursday. These are excerpts from our conversation. Question. This year has been huge for live music. Beyonce, Taylor Swift, Morgan Wallen, Metallica... So many acts are outplaying to people who seem totally amped to finally be back at a concert. But touring has been the centerpiece of your career for ages. How did you learn that was your that was the lane for you? Answer: My manager Roger Davies taught me that. He manages or managed Tina Turner, Cher, Janet Jackson, Sade, Joe Cocker, and myself, and they're all live acts. I've been pounding the pavement for 25 years because that's the arena I belong in, or that's the stadium I belong in, I should say. Question. You think you're a better live performer than a record maker? 
Answer, 100%. Because live is messy. It's live. It's gritty. It's authentic. It's unrehearsed. I mean, we rehearse to a certain extent for safety. But you never know what's going to happen. And I'm never in my head. The second that I step on stage, I'm in my heart. I'm in my body. There's no other place that I operate. As a Virgo, as a mother, as the most responsible person I know, like the stage. It's where I live. Question. Does it ever feel hard to live up to the reputation you've built as a performer? Answer. It's a gift. I love setting the bar higher and higher and higher. But I come from a Broadway theatrical rock and roll background. So for me, you can do all that S and maybe people expect it. But you got to be able to break it down and make it above the music. It's about the lyrics and the song. That's why I have a rock band and why I always have an acoustic section in the show. Question. What do you do now to stay in shape that you didn't have to do 15 years ago? Answer. Every morning I wake up and say thank you to my body. I didn't used to do that. I do yoga. I do high-intensity interval training. I do circuits. And I could do cold plunges after and I do cold plunges after the show. Question. A cold plunge sounds awful. Answer. Oh, it's horrible. What's not horrible is how you feel after. It's anti-inflammatory. It's good for stress. But yeah, it sucks. And I just bought one. Question. Do you ever get scared when you're soaring above the audience? Answer. Absolutely. That's why I started doing it, because I'm afraid of heights. And I don't want to be afraid. I've been in some situations that I don't feel good. I wonder every night if my bungees are going to work. But it's a cool way to go if they don't. Question. Your daughter has done aerial stuff with you, but are your kids ever like, Mommy, don't do it? Answer. Maybe my son a little bit, but he's just little. They've got carry hard blood in them. I mean, he's worse. Answer. Would you ever do a Vegas residency? Answer. When I do Vegas, it'll be the best Vegas show, best show Vegas ever saw. Question. Why haven't you done it yet? Answer. My kids are still young enough to join me on the road. Vegas is something I can do when I when they don't want me to be with them when they don't want to be with me in, anymore. Willow is getting close. Question. Did you see the Taylor Swift or Beyonce tour? Answer. No, and I'm so bummed that I didn't. They're powerful powerhouse women, and I'm so stoked that we're all doing this. It used to be only be only guy bands like Aerosmith and Coldplay and the Rolling Stones. Now it's all women. It's awesome. Question. When do you see some when you do see someone else's show, do you look at it as a fan, as competition, as a fact-finding mission? Answer. Look, any artist out there selling tickets with their name on it is a hard-working mother F. I'm not one of those people looking at a Super Bowl halftime show waiting to hate it. That's bulls. It's inhumane. That person, whether I liked it or not, worked their ass off to be up there and to do to be doing and to be doing this. What I judge a, a performer on, because I'm not going to say I don't, is I feel like I, do I feel like I got to know you? Did I get a little piece of your soul? I walk around the world with this desperate need for connection. Like, don't ask me how I am and then think you're going to keep walking. I'm going to tell you some as you, don't, you do not want to hear. So that's number one. Number two is, did you sound good? Are you singing live? Question. The idea of not singing live, in your mind, is it, it's a con of some kind? Answer. I just prefer a different kind of thing. I like my Janis Joplin's and my Tina Turner's. I want to hear your voice, even if you're hoarse. Like Dave Matthews, 
Oh my god, I went to a show of his in London, just him and a guitar in this tiny little bar. And I was not a Dave Matthews fan until that moment. But I was like, holy as I get it. You're really good. Or Ed Sheeran standing up in a stadium with a guitar. What an accomplishment. Who goes to a stadium show to see a guy with a guitar? Question. You spent any time with Tina Turner? Answer. Not enough. I went to see her when she was 69 years old and she was running around in Christian Lowboutons, dancing her ass up. Then she takes an intermission and I go to back and I and I go to back and sit in her dressing room and talk with her. She was such a magical person, just otherworldly. When she gave back she came back out, she did her acoustic section and dedicated the rest of the show to me. I was looking around to make sure every single person in there heard it. Question. You said you were taken advantage of early in your career by previous managers who locked you into a bad deal. Do you think things have improved since then for young women in the recording business? Answer. Anytime a light is shined on a cancer, it's a good thing. I think women are less afraid to ask for what they deserve. There's safety in numbers, knowing that you can call people out now and not have your life completely ruined. That's all progress. I have this dream of sitting down with Cher, Bette Midler, Sade, Janet Jackson, Stevie Nicks, and then people from my generation, myself, Beyonce, Taylor, and then the younger con con uh, contingent, Halsey, Tate McRae, Doja Cat, and just having a forum and talking about th the three generations and what it was like for the top echelon and for the middle children and for their babies. Wouldn't that be an interesting conversation? I have so many questions. Question. Were you surprised at all by Rolling Stone founder Jen Wenner's recent comments about how he thought women and black artists weren't as articulate as the white man he interviewed in his new book? Answer. No, I'm not surprised. Misogyny and racism are so prevalent today. But they're the dinosaurs and they're on their way out. I don't know how successfully he passed down their poison. Question. That's quite a phrase. Answer. I think about that stuff. Not to get off on a tangent, but me and this other mom were talking last night about how there are these really specific moments in your child's life when they need your guidance. And depending on the guidance they get from you, it really shapes their character. If you get it right, you have the chance of raising it you have the chance of raising a very kind, open-minded individual. And if you get it wrong, that's passing down the poison. With my son, this was a seminal moment. He's like, Mom, everyone calls me a girl. And I'm like, that's because you have long hair, buddy. And people are still hung up on these really old-fashioned societal norms. I told him people call me sir all the time, especially from behind and especially at airports. And he looked at me and, looked at me and he was like, really? I said, yeah, I don't care. Call me sir. Call me whatever. Just stay out of my way. He liked that. And now he gets called a girl and he just looks at me and winks. Question. You went viral on Twitter recently when you roasted someone who compared you to Eddie Izzard. Answer. I felt bad about that. Eddie Izzard is awesome. Question. I think anyone would have gotten that from your... Uh, I think anyone would have gotten that from your comments. Answer. Maybe. I try to do less and less of that. But I was sitting with Willow and it was a moment where she was like, man, that must hurt. And I was like, sometimes it gets to me, baby. She said, I understand. And I'm like, thank you. Also, you're 12. Question. How do you resist the urge to pop off on somebody? Answer. That's a level of maturity I'm still aspiring to. 
but I'm allergic to injustice of any kind. I mean, I used to fight when I was a teenager. I got called into the record company. Former Arista Records boss L.A. Reid was like, you're going to start getting money. You can't fight anymore. He said, do me a favor. Anytime somebody says something really, really awful, look at them and say, do I need this more than I need in my house? Twitter's gross. It's all gross. I don't want to put more negativity into the world. The world needs a light and love and compassion for idiots. I'm working on it. Question. Last thing. What are your best and worst singles? Best maybe So What or Get the Party Started. So What was fun from, fun from start to finish. Writing it, singing it, performing it, the video. It was part of what I got of what got Carrie and I back together. Worst? I mean, there's been many, so many. Maybe true love. And question? Why? Answer? Because it's mean. Carrie's got a thick skin, but I owe him a love song. Oh, wait. I did put that on, on Sponge, uh, that SpongeBob thing. We got, we've got scurvy. I wish I never did that. That was a real mistake. That was Setting the Bar Higher and Higher by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic from the Los Angeles Times calendar section, Monday, October 9, 2023. And now let's read a few articles from Bihayad Together uh, from the Jewish National Fund USA from JNF.org publication from the Together Dispatches from Israel section. This is called Quenching a Thirst for Progress, Partnering for a Better World by Tanya Pons Alon. Hakuna Maji, no water, is the first Swahili phrase I learned in Kenya. We heard it in every community we visited seeking a partner for our sustainable agriculture project. In the Arava Desert in Israel, we are familiar with a lack of water, yet thanks to Jewish National Fund USA's investment in water, it has never limited our uh, farmers' productivity. The Arava's challenges shaped it into the place it is today, innovative, creative, and a world leader in agricultural R&D. This inspired the creation of the Kazer Joint Institute for Food, Water, and Energy Security. We combined the Arava's knowledge and experience with, the, with that of the University of Arizona. This past July, on an empty plot in Makweni, Kenya, surrounded by 500 community members, in the presence of the governor of Makweni, H.E. Mutula Kilonzo Jr., we signed an agreement with the community to teach them how to bring Maji water back. Soon, an agrivoltaic site, uh, which grows plants under solar panels, will be established there. The power generator generated will operate water pumps and irrigate the local field, provide clean water and electricity for the nearby school, and we will also show the farmers how to diversify their crops. For a project like this, sustainability is key. The community has to be able to operate the technology long after we leave, so we've hired local alumni from Jewish National Fund USA's Agricultural School in the Arava as operators. They, in turn, will train the community and maintain the connection between the Arava and the site. Over the first three years of this project, the operation and output will be analyzed by our Kasser Joint Institute researchers from the Arava and the University of Arizona to further optimize its impact. Jewish National Fund USA supports the land and the people of Israel by initiating the Kasser Joint Institute. As part of Blueprint Negev, they made a clear statement. The Arava 
as, the, as a light unto the world, this project is proof. That was Quenching a Thirst for Progress, Partnering for a Better World by Tania Pons Allen. That's from the Together Dispatches from Israel section. To learn more about the Castor Joint Institute for Food, Water, and Energy Security, contact Tanya Pons Allen at Talon, T-A-L-L-O-N, at jnf.org. This next one is called Examining Israel's Future, Starting a New Conversation, by Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. The Supreme Court has come to be viewed by large segments of Israeli society as alien and even hostile. A winding gap has opened between the bench and the Knesset with legislatures proposing laws to bypass or override the court's rulings. Such laws will vitiate judicial review and one of the mainstays of one of the mainstays of any democracy. These words, which could easily have been written last week, were in fact penned nearly three years ago as I sat corona bound in my office and composed my new book, 2048. The Rejuvenated State. I was no prophet, certainly, but I have re recently served in Knesset what, uh, as I watched with growing consternation the breakdown in relations between our parliament and the nation's highest court. At stake was democracy itself. To save it, I argued, Israel must alter the way the Supreme Court judges are chosen to better reflect public opinion my model was America, and to limit the court's jurisdiction the world's widest. Throughout, the principle of judicial review must be upheld, I concluded, and Israel preserved as a truly liberal democracy. The need for judicial reform was one of several dozen issues that I identified as crucial to Israel's future. What state do we want our children and grandchildren to live in 2048, Israel's 100th birthday? How can we guarantee Israel a second century as successful as the first? In answering these questions, the book takes a no-holds-barred approach to Israel's most pressing issues, ultra-Orthodox education, Bedouin polygamy, the status of Israeli Arabs, the peace process, and present, pre presents realistic responses. The goal, however, is not to convince readers of the justness of my positions, but rather to engage them in a dynamic conversation about tomorrow. The aim is to recapture a time before Israel's establishment in 1948 when Jewish thinkers engaged in a heartfelt debate about what the, the nature of the state would it be religious or secular, pro-Western or Middle Eastern, capitalist or socialist. More than by the sword, I believe, Israel was created by words. Today, those words must be spoken by all Israelis. The book appears in Hebrew and Arabic in a single volume and by the Jewish people worldwide. On this, the 75th year of Israel's independence, we must begin speaking honestly and productively about the challenges of the next quarter century. As part of the future-looking vision of Jewish National Fund USA, I will travel across the United States this year and invite you, your family, and communities to join in a discussion about rejuvenating Israel for generations to come. That was Examining Israel's Future, Starting a New Conversation by Michael Oren, former Israeli ambassador to the U.S. Michael Oren will address Jewish National Fund USA communities across the country. A new conversation is beginning. Learn more at zionistvillage.jnf.org.
Let's conclude with some ads from this same publication, Bekayad, together. Like this one. Jewish National Fund USA, Fast and Simple, Plant Trees in Israel as a National, as a Memorial Gift. JNF.org slash trees. Phone is 800-542-TREE or 800-542-8733. And here's one. Don't miss any episodes of IsraelCast. Hear from fascinating personalities as they talk about the amazing work Jewish National Fund USA is doing in Israel. Listen at jnf.org slash IsraelCast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, or SoundCloud. Jewish National Fund USA. Your voice for Israel. And folks, it looks like that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. So for everything that is happening with us Jewish folk right here in the city, the state, the nation, Israel, and the world, find it all right here. And so until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom, and of course, peace. <laughs>